you've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. College is definitely a liminal space. Liminal meaning it's transitional. It's a very transitional space where you undergo these changes and any rite of passage is characterized by having to go through shit that you don't really want to go through. An example, hazing. And any rite of passage, you are separated from whoever your home base is, your family, your friends from home. You're separated. Now you're alone. And then you go to college. You're introduced to all these new people. And then you have to go through different physical tasks, emotional tests. You get pissed on by your frat brothers. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, you are one of them. And then you are more than happy to do those things to other people because it's all part of the ritual. Hello and welcome to Drinks With God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. Welcome. Today we're having a drink with Maura, and we're going to have a conversation I'm really looking forward to. We're talking about Greek life and how that affects people that are moving into the country and experiencing American culture for the first time, and also people between classes experiencing Greek life for the first time. Just there's, We had a very uh, varied conversation on the subject when yeah. we first met, but um, first... A little bit about you and your anthropological background. Um, I know you did a really, really cool senior project. Do you want to talk a little bit about your background in that and what your project was? Sure. So I went to SUNY Purchase, which is a very small SUNY, hardly upstate New York. And, um, well, first I went to Suffolk Community College, and I kind of feel like that's an important part of my educational journey because straight out of high school I went to community college that most people stereotyped as being for underachievers or for people who couldn't afford actual college, especially because I went to Comac School District, which is a very wealthy school district on Long Island. And um, then I transferred to Purchase, and all along I've been studying anthropology, and I really connected with this one professor there, Professor Rudolph Gaudio, and he really pushed for me to try hard in my senior project to talk about class and class differences and the way that consumption falls into things like that. So my senior project, which Purchase makes you do for your whole senior year, it's like a mini thesis sort of, um, was based around thrift stores, but more importantly, like the way that class influences consumption of the material. So it was both the, the perception of thrift stores and also the actual culture clash that happens because they exist, or was it? It was a concentration, basically, on the way that, for some people, thrift stores are an option to buy clothes for a job interview, buy new furniture, because it's cheap and that's what you can afford. You know, it's just kind of like the whole idea of recycling you like goods that other people might just end up throwing away is really exciting to me, because it kind of like gives objects a second life, and it gives them, it gives the object... Um, an opportunity to then be used for something else. Like a big, the big thing I hit home on on my senior project was like the meanings we apply to objects when they're secondhand. Where it's like you might find a mug in a thrift store that says something like kind of bizarre, like with like a dog on it that just says like rest in peace, lucky. Like you're assuming the dog is lucky, 
And you might buy that mug because it's like something kind of quirky and funny and you drink out of it. But for some Midwestern, like six year old woman, that's her dead dog. <laughs> but it's also kind of cool because you can reuse the cup, which is recycling, and I'm all about sustainability. But it's interesting because the way that items get consumed, there's always like in the second life, an ironic distance in a lot of ways. Um, at least for younger people who are middle class, when they see something at a thrift store that's like funny or weird, for them there's like an ironic distance. And for the person who it actually belonged to, it was just like their belonging that they ended up getting rid of. Especially because a lot of things that thrift stores take in are from estate sales, where it's like the person died and then all of their stuff was just sold at an auction and a thrift store ended up buying it. What's really funny is that when I was researching for my senior thesis, I was in this one thrift store in Brentwood, which is uh, Long Island. Are a lot of your listeners from Long Island or for all over? Actually, a lot of my listeners seem to be from Germany and Japan. Oh, interesting. But uh, carry on. Anyway, <laughs> so Brentwood is this neighborhood that I did most of my research in because it's famous. Not, I mean, it's like infamous, I guess, for having a lot of um, illegal immigrants living there and a lot of uh like latino gangs and things like that and so i thought well here's the perfect place to compare a thrift store there versus like a super new fancy thrift store like sabers which is kind of an ironic term to have a fancy thrift store but um when i was at island thrift in brentwood um the owner of the building was there and i was like hey can i have like a quick conversation with you because so much of anthropology is supposed to be in-face, person-to-person conversations, long-term stuff, but he had, like, no interest in that. And he was just like, I'm going to need you to leave my store if you keep asking questions. And I was like, what do you mean? It's for a college project. And I thought he was, like, joking at first because that's just the way I interact with people is that I would never be like, you can't ask me questions. And he was just like, what you're doing is illegal. I'm not going to tell you anything about these state sales. And then he made me leave. <laughs> so I think that there also might be, like, a secret society of uh, – thrift store owners that are killing off really rich people so that their stuff gets sold at estate sales. <laughs> I just want to say I would watch the shit out of that Netflix miniseries. <laughs> that would be fantastic, especially because I've got friends in the antiques industry and I've been to Brimfield several times and I love it there. I don't know if you know Brimfield. No. Um, it's I think it's the world's biggest outdoor antiques market. Where is it? Um, it's Brimfield, Ma- Western Massachusetts. It happens oh, for... Four times a year. The actual show itself is larger in square mileage mm-hmm. is larger than the actual town of Brimfield. So wow. like four like three, four times a year, Brimfield like doubles in size or whatever the actual chock full of antiques. And it's just <laughs> because antiques dealers like will come to like get their stuff to then sell to thrift stores or yeah. sell in their store and it'll be just people taking stuff directly from estate sales all over the world and just bringing it there. It's fantastic what you can find in secondhand culture yeah definitely all the things like that and it's just like there's so much affect there and like i don't know i feel like there's such magic and items that we that we can reuse just like a personal story like my dad makes he always made more money like selling used books on ebay because he's always been a reader and like knows how the market works in a lot of ways than with his, like, union job, actually. Well, it's, like, a shitty union, but, <laughs> but still, like, I don't know. Like, a lot of the people I encountered at the, thrift, at the thrift store were super aggressive people who had boutiques or, like, would sell a lot of 
clothes online that were either rare and stuff. And on certain days when they would have sales, they would just have shopping carts like full of clothes. And even if you like looked at their cart, they would <laughs> be really nasty towards you because they're the type of people to grab things straight out of your hand, even if you're not. So they think if you're looking at their cart, then you're going to steal something from their cart and then buy it and then resell it at its real value like they were going to do. Yeah. Knowing which estate sales and antique shows to go to is almost like a secret language yeah. that's, and that people can be very jealous about guarding. Yeah. Um, Definitely. But when you do stumble upon those places, they're really fantastic because I've literally seen like a barrel of like preserved alligator heads next to a barrel of like doll hands next to like, this is where you can get like various apothecary jars full of, we don't know what it is. You have to clean it up and find out, but they're a couple bucks each. Yeah. Because we don't know what this is. Yeah. <laughs> to get back on point, because yeah, I'm really good at... we talked about secret societies, kind of, so we can talk about fraternities now. Yeah. Now that, <laughs> all right. So in a roundabout way, going from thrift stores to the secret societies of estate sale uh, vultures to uh, Greek life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Greek life. <laughs> Greek life. So um, the idea that there is a huge culture shock to be had from arriving onto a college campus for the first time especially in terms of Greek life. When you're not native to the United States or if you're coming into a college from a vastly different like financial or class background from your fellow students, a lot of times people turn to Greek life to find a community and that is in a lot of ways if you're looking at it from you know the outside looking in, it's a series of indoctrination rituals for white collar culture. Yep. I mean that's <laughs> um at the very least, that's my opinion, and this do, this whole um, podcast does start with a disclaimer, so I'm excited for all those hate emails I'm about to get. I love responding to you guys. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, for everyone who, who thinks I worship Satan, by the way, I love you guys, and I hope that you love the fact that I've been sending you uh, photocopies uh, from the Ordo Temp- um, Templar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one of the things I wrote really big on my notepad is aggressive heterosexual masculinity. (laughs) And that sounds like it's a lot to unpack, but in relation to frats, I don't think it is. Um, Fraternities are stereotyped as being a bunch of, like, idiot juice heads who drink too much, and they are horrible, sexist, homophobic, racist, white guys who are able to get away with it because they're protected, by their school, they're protected by their whiteness, they're protected by their class standing. And I kind of feel like that's all true <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, just a disclaimer, I didn't go to a college that had fraternities. Um, there was a large movement to keep fraternities out of SUNY Purchase while I was there. Um, I'm not really sure how that ended up going because it wasn't resolved until after I had already graduated. But I think there's something to be said that my very small art school, my very small gay art school, because Purchase is very gay, um, fought really hard to make sure that fraternities stayed away. And of course, the opposing side brought up the argument of how can you be, how can you say that you're for equal rights and you want to be PC when you're stomping all over our rights to have a frat? And Obviously, that's an argument that gets brought up a lot. That's a very common narrative. Like, what do you mean black people can't be racist? What do you mean blah, blah, blah? I'm being discriminated against even though the whole world 
has kissed my ass for millennia because I'm white. Um, and I just feel like there's certain environments that are, that cultivate that, preferably really rich schools in the southern part of America and places that don't cultivate that, my little gay SUNY purchase. <laughs> I think for foreign students coming to America, there's such culture shock because America, I mean, I'm a Native American, so it's hard for me to say. I feel like any person I've met who isn't a Native American, somebody who's a non-Native American, they um, kind of have this romanticized version, maybe. I mean, if they don't hate us, <laughs> they have this romanticized version of what America might be like and everything. We have such like a vivacious, vibrant youth culture here, but to have to then be thrown into the school environment where you have to concentrate on your studies, you have to concentrate on things like that, to also have to deal with this whole social aspect of like Greek week, you know, things like that. It's probably like fucking horrifying. I, I think I would be. If I, even as a person who grew up in America, if I had to step onto a college campus and deal with Greek week, I would probably sooner puke on all of them. <laughs> But maybe that's just me. <laughs> and uh, it's a big trope for any fish-out-of-water movie that takes place on a college campus for Rush Week to be a huge, like, plot point. Which frat are you going to be a part of? Are you going to be a part of the cool frat, the this, the this frat, the that frat, or the underdog frat? And it always ends up being uh, hashtag not all frats kind of a movie. <laughs> either that or a it's okay to party fight for your rights kind of a movie and I just want to note that the fight for your rights song was meant completely ironic and I love the fact that the people that it was making fun of are the ones who adopted it as their anthem <laughs> I will never not find that funny <laughs> I didn't know that <laughs> oh my god Beastie Boys trivia they made that ironically yes when you take into consideration that for a lot of American culture, as, as you'd said before we started recording, education is considered to be a given at this point in time. Yeah. Going to college is considered the norm for a lot of people that are coming in from, from China, from India, from, from Korea, from Japan, from, from Germany, from England, from you know, all these countries which are in varying degrees similar but different to America. America's got a very specific kind of culture. Yeah. There's a distinct difference in how children are raised in the United States where once you hit college age, you're considered to be suddenly on your own. Mm -hmm. And especially when it's a college where you're staying away from the house, away from your parents, rush week in the big rich schools, especially the ones that are where Greek life is like the norm. Yeah. People that are coming in from out of the country, the people that are not part of that use that class that mm -hmm. typically is on that campus. It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. Um, for like one example that I can give, which is uh, different but similar. Of uh, while I was an undergrad, I was dating somebody who was not even remotely interested in sports, who was very much a uh, very very introverted, and he was at a big school where it was wildly different. He was just trying to like do his thing with his studies, and his roommate was 
um, you know, way into football, was trying to figure out which frat he wanted to be in, and the guy I was dating was just kind of like, I just want to, like, you know, get through my classes. Very interesting to see someone who was working really hard to resist that culture having to, like, be in the middle of that. Definitely. I feel like for, I mean, just, like, back, um, backpacking off what you said, is that the term? Backpacking? Yeah, backpacking. Piggybacking. 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 Piggybacking off what you said. Putting um, a piggy in that backpack. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, I feel like there's a certain citizenship that comes with being in a frat, um, just because I kind of, it relates to your idea of, like, Americans kind of at a certain age are just like, okay, you're an adult, even though you've never been treated like an adult before. Being able to be in a frat definitely gives you a sense of a community. And yeah. it, it allows you to take part in people and have brothers and, you know, um, be part of an exclusive elitist group. And also, it's all under the guise of networking. Yeah. But really, it shouldn't be called networking because you're not really meeting anybody who can further your career. You're just finding people who, like, if they ever have a successful startup company, they'll be like, bro, yeah, I'll hire you. You could do this and make money. Like, I don't know. There are, of course, instances where you can network. Some people will consider that favoritism and other people will consider that networking. Mm -hmm. You're not meeting people outside of your group. Yeah. It's It's a different form of nepotism. And that doesn't mean that nepotism isn't how things have been working since the dawn of business. Yeah. It, but it's finding a different home, it's finding a different family. And it's do, but it's doing so with a lot of ritualized behavior which people aren't calling that. The different um indoc- like indoctrination rituals of rush week are things that you'll see in any sort of religious culture like dating back into ancient times. Yeah. There's like, you know, all this hazing that goes along with fraternities and technically it's like certain, depending on the state, I believe, or maybe the the county, it's illegal to have hazings, but they still happen in secret. And there's, you know, a lot of like faculties looking the other way in regards to it, but that entirely is a ritual. Beer pong is a ritual. That's actually how Milo and I first (laughs) decided to do this podcast is because we were talking about the ritualistic, almost like, grotesque behavior that goes around a table of super buff white guys playing beer pong and other drinking games and it's like for them like that it seems like from the outside that is their be all end all to be with their brother and drinking (laughs) i do want to oh i'm i know i'm gonna butcher this quote i'll put it in the show notes once i do find the actual one but the kind of frenzy that happens around a soccer match is similar because you'll get if you're at a the same way that if you're like like for me it's like if if I'm at a mosh pit or or like if you're at a live sports game even if you're kind of like lukewarm about the team you get really caught up yeah in what's going on it becomes a life or death situation because you just get amped up by everybody else getting amped up and that feeds in on itself yeah so when it's your brothers your team the people that you want to become your new family it just gets that much 
higher stakes. And yeah. especially when it's a small environment and you're just like, we have to do this because every year we do this. This is how we pick our new family members, our new blood members. And you're desperately trying to fit in because you're now on a college campus. You finally built up to this. You're finally out of the house. You're finally on your own, but you're you need a new home base, you need a new family, because you've never really been on your own. The gestation period in the United States is, you know, 18, 19 years that you're treated like you're five, and then all of a sudden you're shoved out of the nest. Yeah. So it's very natural for, even if the faculty's looking the other way on the college campus, it's like hazing is going to be supported and, like, continued, even by people who are hazed. Because yeah. the whole ritual aspect of it will cement bonds from the people who went through it. Yeah. I mean, just to bring in some anthro terms. So the whole aspect of you not even being gung-ho on something, but because the people around you are, you still get sucked into it. That's called social effervescence. And I don't remember the exact person to coin the term. I think it might have been Durkheim, but I don't really remember. My professors would be mad at me. But... Um, the whole point of it is that social effervescence is really what drives a ritual and it's the social is sacred. Like when you go to a church or a temple or do anything of religious value, what's really important is not necessarily the religious aspect, but instead all of the social graces that go along with it and all of the, the socializations that go along with it. Um, yeah, you could take up the time to, like, put on your Sunday best and, like, go to the the place with the flickering lights and everybody chanting in a language you don't understand, but it's still the fact that everybody's doing it and everybody's behaving a specific way. Yeah, and you're doing it all together, and that's what's really powerful about a group doing something together, and I think that goes with frats, especially because it's, like, a bunch of guys who are flaunting, I mean... I guess I would say that they're flaunting. <laughs> they're flaunting the fact that they're drunk, indirectly flaunting that they're white, but feeling, like, empowered by it in some sort of way. I feel like when I think of frat boys being together, they're, like, very empowered by the socialness of it, and it's kind of, like, reaffirming their, in the great American hierarchy, they're kind of on top. The people who are in who are in frats typically when they get older are the ones who are on top. College is definitely a liminal space. Liminal meaning it's transitional. That's another anthro word. <laughs> um, it's a very transitional space where you undergo these changes and any um, rite of passage is characterized by like having to go through shit that you don't really want to go through. An example, hazing. And um, any rite of passage, you are separated from whoever your home base is, your family, your friends from home, you're separated, now you're alone, and then you go to college, you're introduced to all these new people, and then you have to go through different physical tasks, emotional tests, you get pissed on by your frat brothers, I don't know, and then all of a sudden you are one of them, and then you are more than happy to do those things to other people because it's all part of the ritual. And a lot of times people will, like, look back on it and just be like, well, it was just this thing. It was just this one small thing, and it, it's very innocent. And it's the mind frame 
that drives it. Yeah. It's the fact that you're hyped up on adrenaline, that you might be scared, you might not be okay with it, but then afterward you're going along with it. Yeah. The fact that it's been around for as long as there's been more than three humans walking this earth, it's probably always going to be around. The idea that, like, oh, we have the secret club, if you want to join in, we're going to have to blindfold you and push you onto this glass, and they take off the blindfold, and it was potato chips the whole time, so it's not all that bad. doesn't matter that you were so scared that you pissed yourself when you thought they were actually going to push you onto glass, because you were willing to do that to find a new family. But that's still hazing, and that's still a kind of mindfuck that... Yeah. And I also feel like the difference between a ritual that, I mean, I'm not trying to romanticize other cultures... Or anything, but there's a difference between a ritual and a setting where it's super kinship based. My father did this, I'm doing this, my sons will do this, versus like, yo, bro, you have to drink 20 beers or else you can't hang with us. Like, there's something, even though the ritual involving the kinship may be just as dangerous for that person's body, for their mind, whatever, to me, there's something less toxic there and the only thing I can pinpoint is really the spirit of white American capitalism but maybe I'm going on a tangent <laughs> what I find interesting is how often frats will just be like well they'll point to oftentimes military societies from like ancient Greece ancient Rome yeah, that did which that is so problematic which sometimes yes they're correct like the especially in Arcadia there were sacrifices on top of Mount Olympus, and then you'd swim across a lake, and then you'd have a banishment period for, like, anywhere between three and eight years. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, like, you wouldn't even be able to go to classes if you were banned for three to eight years. And where are you going to find a lake, a proper yeah. lake, and a proper mountain? But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, you know, Zeus like Hoysos is... I'm pretty sure, like, <laughs> Zeus like Hoysos isn't, like, the patron of every single Greek fraternity out there. But then it also pulls into fact of you're taking the ritual but not the sacred. Yes. Which, you know, as just, you know, as the religious studies nerd, that's not sitting well with me personally. But that's my own personal, you know, issue. Yeah. But there's also the fact that you're just pulling in various leaves from various books and you're not actually... uh, trying to apply it properly. Yeah. I feel like that's the grand old American way. <laughs> but, that, but I mean, you have to decide whether or not that's okay for you personally when you're going to jump into a ritual. The yeah. big issue that I think is so jarring is that so many people come into these situations. It's one thing if you're, you know, you have a legacy and it's like your grandfather was part of this frat and your father was part of this frat and now you're going to jump in on this frat. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. But like you said... And, like, and you're, you have some vague idea of, like, okay, so I'm going to do this because mm-hmm. I have a history of doing this. And we've all gone to this college and we're all going to this. Or if you're coming in from another country and you have no idea, no one's really prepared for you for what's really going to happen. And you're suddenly jumping into American society and all you know is, I really want to go to the school because it's a really good school. And I've spent so much time, energy, and money to get to this country, to get to this school, I've got this visa. I'm trying really hard to keep it and to keep my scholarship and to stay in the, and to, uh, you know, have all these expectations piled on me. Yeah. Like, it's a double culture shock. You're, you're in a whole new society, and then on top of that, you're in this, like, weird microcosm society 
that's got all these strange rules, and you don't know which one is real and which one isn't when you're uh, when you're in the middle of something like that. Yeah, definitely. Pause for whiskey. Pause for whiskey. <laughs> I mean, historically, frats. Or I mean, now we call them frats. Initially, they were honor societies. Yes. <laughs> and initially, they were. I mean, some high schools to have them minded, like the Latin honor society, the arts honor society, and they all stem from the same place where frats did. However, honor societies are now diminished as to where frats are thriving all across America. Um, honor societies were based on, like, secret groups where they could talk about things that their professors didn't want them to talk about. Like, you know, things that were maybe, like, were a little bit too radical for the classroom or things that might have been not okay to say in class. And now it's kind of stemmed off into this super insane can like, consumer-driven, I want to say, type of thing, where it's just, like, frats constantly have to keep up with the other frats. Like, there's almost, like, a competition between them. Like, who has the best parties? And in regards to their parties, there are no lines too deep to cross for them. Like, they're so down. Like, um, in 2017, which is this year, um... There was a frat that had a Cinco de Drinko party just like a couple of months ago. Um, Baylor frat, which I don't even know where that is. My bad. Um, but the whole thing was that the girls had to come dressed as maids and the men had to come dressed as construction crews. And it was on Cinco de Mayo. And it's like, we all get drunk dressed like Mexicans, which, you know, I'm only saying that with quotes because that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that made headlines this year about frats was that some girl in a sorority invited over some frat guys that she knew to come over and watch The Bachelor, and the entire time they were really, like, involved in it, they were watching it, and um, they were, like, taking notes the whole time, and at the end she was just like, wow, like, I didn't know that they were so into The Bachelor, and she tweeted a picture of their notes, and their notes were like, wicked racist and sexist horrible things to say and it's just first of all the bachelor isn't really for your demographic second of all i feel like because frats create an atmosphere where they are untouchable they are completely okay and open and young and stupid enough to think that they could just say whatever they want and there's no consequences for it because in reality there kind of aren't and that's just a very common theme i think in all of america where White, upper-class people can just kind of do and say whatever they want, and if you call them out for it, you're uptight, you're overly PC, you don't get it, they're just joking. When in reality, they're just constantly promoting and continuing toxic language and behavior. Like, that's a horrible thing to say about anybody, especially a woman. Yeah, no. And one thing, um, just going back to what you were saying earlier about honor societies diminishing and uh, frats like gaining in power. Yeah, we back... don't care about being smart anymore. We care about partying. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of where you see that shift happening is, funnily enough, in the 20s, if I remember correctly. Huh. Which just makes me think about ev every single frat that does anything today in the terms of the Drones Club from Jeeves and Wooster, because of course I fucking do. Because for the longest time, you'd see people who would, you know, like you'd said, they were fantastic students and they were trying to get, you know, ahead in discourse in their, you know, their favorite fields. And so their professors would 
um, give them the resources and you know the time and the space to meet with other students similar to them to talk about those subjects among themselves. Mm -hmm. And they'd talk about more radical ideas, more cutting-edge ideas in their own time, in their own space, without you know professor or teacher supervision. Uh, and that's where you'd see a lot of all these different scholarship competitions, which we still have today, happen. Usually, mm -hmm. which um, affect like AP classes and college. Uh, I mean, uh, in high schools. At the same time, for ages, there's been gentlemen's clubs, and I'm not talking about what people today know as gentlemen's clubs, which are just fancy terms for strip clubs. Yeah. <laughs> Actual gentlemen's clubs, where people just like sit around, smoke cigars, play piano, and talk about hunting, which I might want to go to one of those. In fact, that sounds I'm, great. Yeah. Um, there, oh, there I'm not is, invited, though. <laughs> there is, in fact, a queer old-school gentleman's club, and, like, 90% of the clientele are, like, really butch lesbians, and I loved going there. It was in Prague. Oh, God, the name is escaping me. They That's have a, amazing. Oh. Uh, if I can remember it, and if I can find the website, I will definitely put it in the show notes. I love that place. I only went, like, twice when I was living over there, but anyway. The, um... The Drones Club was one of those kind of places. Cor let me correct myself. It was a parody of those kind of places back in the 20s and 30s. So I don't... I'm explaining this for the audience. I don't know whether or not you, Maura, have seen Jeeves and Wooster. No, but, I haven't. Uh, it's one of my favorite shows. It was just like Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry bringing to life mm -hmm. those fantastic, fantastic novels. And um, the Drones Club was just where upper-class men in England throughout the books were just hanging out being idiotic and it was highlighted constantly by Stephen Fry's character Jeeves the butler like how idiotic yeah. <laughs> these people were and how they had no time on their hands which is highlighted by the name of the place the drones club yeah which yes that place was very much a parody of what those places were which is just where high society people would hang out and just be men's men and you see them get up to stupid hijinks whether it's like stealing a bunch of cats in a policeman's hat and hiding it in somebody's house. You'll see a lot of that in modern-day frats, where they're not doing what they were originally set out to do, which is academic discourse. You'll see some frats take the bull by the horns and try to be, like, models for society like they were originally intended to do, but less and less frats and sororities are doing so, which is a shame, because they've got the platform to do that. They've got the legacy to do that. They've got... They've got the connections to do that from former members. I, I hate to be trite, but, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You can do something with a frat and with a sorority. It's just really easy not to. It's really easy to compete to have the best party. It's really easy to use that to protect yourself when one of your members decides that they're going to get really drunk and rape somebody. Yeah. And then try and, like, you convince the staff to just, like, cover everything up when there's the media fallout. Yeah. Or your parents try to convince the staff, which is kind of the most vile thing. Yeah. Um, how, like, the parents of people who are in frats kind of defend the actions of their kids um, and try to, like, buy... I mean, if they're wealthy enough, they'll try to buy their kids' place out of the trouble that they got themselves into. Um... Like, in 2016, uh, one frat built a mock Trump wall where, for their Greek week or something, um, for their rush week, every frat kind of builds, like, 
walls around their their houses that they all live in. And this one decided to make it Trump-themed as a joke, but at the same time, all the staff of that campus, like the working staff, were either Hispanic or Latino, Latina, and um, it was like a horrible joke gone awry and they're like well it was just a joke we didn't mean it and that's what the faculty was saying that's what their parents were saying but in reality it's like you need to be held accountable for the jokes that you're making no matter how casual you're trying to make them off to be like they put up a giant wall and they wrote like build a wall trump's america all of that bullshit and it's like yeah like i would roll my eyes at that but things just because i would roll my eyes at it doesn't mean somebody else might not go home and feel horribly alienated from the country that they are living in. If you put the time and effort to, and manual labor, really, time and effort here <laughs> means manual labor. Yeah. To do that, you're not, it's not a casual joke. You obviously mean it. Yeah. Another really interesting article that I found, which was actually in Rolling Stone, was there were these three frat brothers who got wicked rich smuggling in illegal immigrants past the border in Texas. And for them... It, it was just kind of funny because for them it wasn't even like a human rights thing. Like, you know, these people need to be somewhere where they're safe. They want to come here, so I want to help them come here. For them it was just like, yeah, I got $500 a head and it was sick. It's just such like a juxtaposition. Frat brothers smuggling in illegal immigrants so that those said immigrants could live better lives here and send money back to their home families. Like, I just found the whole thing very bizarre. Like is my only response. Chaotic neutral. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, yes, you put in a lot of, like, time and effort. Again, time and effort. That's money. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean. Yeah. We've been spending a lot of time talking about frats, and I do want to, and I don't know how much anthropological um, research and data you've done into sorority culture, because it is similar yet different. Yeah. It is similar yet different because, honestly, I went to high school with a lot of girls who ended up in sororities. And they, like, fucking loved it. But, I mean, not to put anybody in a box, but I just feel like, in terms of things like that, women are typically a lot less toxic when it comes to environments like that. They may be problematic and they may let things slide that aren't okay to let slide, but... <laughs> I feel almost like, and this is coming from somebody who's been multiple different genders across multiple different institutions, including several different college institutions, females will tend to uh, make clicks from birth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean... And you will defend, like, beyond politics, beyond race, beyond class, you will defend your sisters, like, to the death. Like, they might be wrong and you will bitch slap them later. Mm -hmm. But right now, somebody you have else. To front something else. Yeah, right now somebody <laughs> else has to be like hit, mm -hmm. and you will like take them home, and you and you will uh, you know you'll mix that martini, and you'll both sit down, and you will chew them out. But after you smack the person who dared voice your own personal opinions at them first. I know, out of all of the fraternities and sororities that I have had personal stuff with, just through friends, like hometown friends, stuff like that. All my friends who are in sororities did a lot of community service works, which is, you know, that's important. I mean, I think it's important to give back to the community that you're a part of. 
in one way or another, whether that be voting a certain way or having a bake sale that benefits like, you know, an old person's home or whatever. The only things I ever hear of that always come from sororities. I have one friend that I grew up with, my friend Kirsten, she went to GW and she, which is like a pretty wealthy school and she loved her sorority and she liked it a lot, but she, like, I also know her very well and know that she drinks a lot <laughs> and I know that had a big part of her sorority too, which is what's in common with Bretts. Um, but I also know that she, like, liked it a lot. I have another friend, Erin, who did a, she did a lot of, like, community benefits stuff, like a lot of stuff for breast cancer, which, I mean, even with the whole, like, the pink ribbon, like, yeah, there's, like, a lot of investigation in, um, in regards to, like, where the funds are going for, like, breast cancer research. It's still, like, nice to see a group of students trying rather than just, like, throwing a stupid party where they wear blackface or something. <laughs> I also feel like there's a lot of unnecessary, weirdly sexist pressure on sororities versus fraternities to be more active in their communities. Almost like sororities have to be... They have to make up for it or something. Or almost like sororities have to be just kind of like a different version of the Girl Scouts. Yeah. That's an interesting way to think about it, definitely. Where, um, yeah, whereas fraternities are not ever in any way associated with the Boy Scouts. Sororities are in a lot of ways um, shown doing community service work. There are, they are shown partying. And I'm not saying that they don't. I'm not saying that they, there aren't sororities that do the same sort of sins that frats are in the news about doing. But sororities kind of seem to have this pressure put on them to perform in a way that frats don't have. Yeah, and I think that goes with the rhetoric of, like, oh, boys will be boys, where boys are kind of given a slap on the wrist for things that girls wouldn't be, and less is expected of men because they are men, and women are the ones who create the home, or women are the ones who do, like, the nice social graces, and men are the ones who, like, do the tough, hard decisions. First of all, that's, like, entirely sexist. Second of all... It's just kind of bullshit because I think any large group of students organizing together should be held accountable to do some sort of educational thing, some sort of community service thing, something that betters their community as a whole rather than just bettering themselves. Coming from the theoretical point of view of somebody who's part of the staff or the faculty, making a group that's in the student body, whether it's a frat or a sorority, do community service work or something academic related or some kind of like competition or even just behave and not throw a party that has some sort of, like, racist theme to it. That just seems like a given. Yeah. It's going to make the school look better. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only times I've ever seen... I mean, maybe that's just also the filtering down of news, but the only time I've, times I've ever seen, like, positive frat stories is when it's, like, an exclusively black frat advocating for other students of color. There was a case of that in 2011 where a black frat um, defended an undocumented student at their college and fought really hard for them to be represented in court and not get kicked out of the country, not, you know, be sent away. And they were one of the few, like, large groups advocating for that, and it did cause a ruckus, and it allowed that person to be able to be taken more seriously in court rather than just be dismissed and sent back home to their country of origin. But, I mean... Who knows, that could just be because of the way things get reported, 
I try to stay neutral on all subjects as much as I can until I actually have first-hand experience in multiple situations, but I kind of feel like black frats are like, I don't know, is there such a thing as a queer frat? Do those exist? I know that there's one frat off the top of my head. I don't know the name or the college. I can, I will find it and I'll put it in the show notes where they made a big effort for being a specifically queer frat where they were being very adamant about being a haven for gay men and trans men. Wow. This was, I think, like three years ago. <laughs> I want to say three. Let, not as many as five years ago. It's got. I think it's got to be like three, maybe four years ago. Wow. And it, it made the news because it's, it's not the norm. But I, on an individual basis, it's not a big issue. When it comes to like being a like a plank in their platform, it's not something that's generally discussed, as far as I'm aware. Back to the point that we were originally trying to get to, um, in terms of culture shock in these areas, it's not even the fact that um, fraternity and sorority culture is a microcosm of uh, American culture. It's the fact that there is a specific kind of American culture that gets concentrated. Yeah. I'd say concentrated. It gets yeah. like a, it's like <laughs> encouraged and like yeah. it like conglomerates into a giant blob of horribleness. It's not even like as a conscious thing. A lot. I'm definitely gonna say the fact that like most fraternities sororities don't exist to further any bad intention or any awful thing. No. They're mostly there like to party and to like just kind of like all hang out together in one house and maybe like just trash it for fun if something like that exists for you know like a hundred years on a 150 year old campus there is going to be some like well we always did this and like well my dad believes that and you know like so i'm gonna continue to do those ideals because you know like i'm 19 or 20 years old and my only experience with the outside world is what my parents have filtered for me already. And if you're coming from a rich, upper-class Republican household, that's going to assume that you've got a very specific set of ideals. Yeah. And it's going to impart on people that are coming into the country Yeah. that, okay, this is how I have to behave if I'm going to keep my status on this campus, if I'm going to keep my scholarship, if I'm going to fit in. Yeah. And that's kind of a scary situation to be in. Whether or not you believe something, you kind of have to conform to it, at least to some degree. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree, and I just feel like there's something especially toxic about a group of people who have always, maybe not been in charge, but people who have always been privileged in certain aspects, continuing that privilege and creating spaces that are exclusive to them. It alienates people who do not fit that mold. It alienates people who can either financially not not fit their standards, like ethnically, religiously, gender-wise, sexuality-wise, does not fit their standards. And for them, they're just like... I think the, what I'm trying to say is that the real toxicity of frats is that they don't see themselves as something offensive. They don't see themselves as something that disrupts other people's sense of self they see themselves as like no we're just here to hang out and have fun and we're gonna like do stuff and go to college it's not that big of a deal 
when in reality it's like, well, no, you're kind of in, there's like such a legacy around frats and they're influencing the entire social life of a college campus. Like specifically, you know, Southern colleges or really big wealthy colleges. And I just feel like that's very toxic. Like, yeah, secret communities, secret meetings have always been a thing and there's always been rituals, but there's something so sinister about like a bunch of white dudes sitting there being like, you know, why don't all lives matter? Like, yeah, that's dumb. Like, yeah, I don't hate cops. Like, can we cops break up my parties? But like, you know, <laughs> I just think like there's something so sinister about a bunch of white guys sitting in a room just kind of like, for lack of a better term, jerking one another off about how it's okay what they're doing and that everybody else is just too sensitive. The exact terminology I know that uh, I'm going to butcher here, but the idea of having like some sort of information fatigue where you just, there's so much happening in the world right now and us all having access to everything at every, any given moment, given the internet and given social media, that it's impossible to not shut down at a certain point and just be like, you know what, this set of ideals was spoon-fed to me and this is the extent of thinking about it I've been able to do and I'm just going to focus on what I have to do to get by in my day, in my studies, in my work, in my job, in my life, in my small social group, whatever it is, and just stick to this set of ideals and not think about it mm -hmm. and just not rock the boat because I need to just get on with my life and not think for myself and not try and judge what I'm doing anymore because I just need to put one foot in front of the other today and the next day and the next. Hmm. And I think that that just keeps things spiraling out of control, especially when it comes to undergrad, because a lot of people in undergrad campuses where fraternities tend to be a lot more active and a lot more in control of how social life goes, in the bigger communities, like, what are you going to do this weekend? It's either the game or there's this big frat party and I happen to be invited, so I'm a cool kid. Like, yeah. that's really how it tends to go there's going to be only so much you can do to stay in that community. And if you step out of line too much, you have to kind of create your own loud enough niche to be able to have a social life outside of that. Yeah, definitely. That's the only way I can really picture it on a campus level is that, like, unless you and your niche and your friends are, like, loud enough and equally as represented the way that frats are, then it's just kind of like, what do you do then socially? Yeah. If you're in a campus of like a couple like thousand people, 20,000, 20, thousand people, and only like a couple hundred could go to at most one of the big frat parties, it's going to be more of a click thing. Yeah. And even if it's fraternity versus fraternity and like who's got the best party like oh i went to this guy's party and then that guy's party and like i can compare the two but i'm not part of either frat um you're still thinking about ideology versus ideology to some very very small degree yeah definitely which is stupid because you're really just comparing who was playing what playlist and who got what kind of boxed wine 
Yeah. <laughs> but I guess when it comes down to it, it matters, right? <laughs> yeah. And it shouldn't be dictated by that. No. It shouldn't be. Socialization should not be dictated by who got what box one. Yeah. All right. So I think we did kind of get away from our our initial idea of the subject, but the the anthropological breakdown of what frats d do and what they can, shouldn't have do is, just to bring it back to your thesis actually, kind of interesting in comparison to how people treat treat objects class to class. Because a lot of times people join a frat just to find a, a whole new definition of family and then um, express that through partying and having a new home base. And a lot of times when people are taking uh, another object from a, from a thrift store, they're just kind of like giving new life to somebody else's objects. A lot of times today, like with hipster culture and... Um, and I say that coming from the college, like the factory where they make the hipsters. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's been called that before. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know when it comes to thrift stores, it's kind of a mixed bag. But you'll find people that are generally from like upper middle class white people coming into thrift stores, grabbing an ugly sweater to wear, ironically, just for example, which is a fashion statement, mm. as well as a, this is what I can afford kind of a thing. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you'll go over into a major college in, um, in the American South, and you'll have someone coming in from India, say, and they're jumping into a fraternity because it's a home base. It's an identity that they can easily assume, and a group of people that they can quickly latch onto to help them navigate this new and interesting world that they have to become a part of if yeah. they're going to succeed and get ahead. And it's them trying to assume this white middle upper class culture. A quote that I wrote down is from Ben Collins who wrote an article in Esquire, which I think Esquire is like a gentleman's magazine or something like that. <laughs> but regardless... He wrote something interesting. Um, frats serve as feeder systems that aren't based on merit or friendship, but by connection to an amorphous machine that requires dissolution of personhood and independent thought. Um, and he wrote that in 2014 on an article about why we don't need frats anymore. But I think there's something to be said there. Frats aren't really based on merit or friendship. I mean, friendship, yeah, but like, if it's just somebody you're only drinking with, they're not really your friend. They're just your drinking buddy that you went to college with. <laughs> and um, there is a lot of nepotism that goes on within frat communities post-college because if you're in a certain frat, you might get hired for, for a certain job, and that just kind of breeds an environment that promotes the upward mobility of just like upper-middle-class white people, and if they're not white they're still upper middle class or upper class. And it's just all the same people doing the same thing, getting good jobs, living the status quo life that most people would perceive as normal and something to achieve to when reality, there's kind of no room for other people to come into that space. They don't like the room for that. Like if you were a butch lesbian wanting to join a frat, you would not be allowed to probably join the frat. You'd probably be made fun of for wanting to join the frat. I'm not saying that. That's that's probably not anything a butch lesbian would probably want to do anyway. But, <laughs> I mean, still, it's just like 
the spaces aren't inclusive enough to be so drawn towards nepotism, I think. Kind of to go back to an earlier point, the whole idea of creating a new family immediately after being thrown out of the nest from the previous family you'd been a part of. It's hard to do that out of completely new ideals. It's when people have barely started to form an identity away from where they've been. There's something about uh, suddenly arriving in a brand new space where you're just trying to conform to whomever and whatever is willing to possibly accept you. And that whole information fatigue, which I mentioned earlier, where people are just going to kind of shut down and let things happen and just kind of trust that things are going to be okay and that they're just going to take in what is going in around them and put one foot in front of the other and do what they have to do to get on because they've only got so much time and so much energy and so much empathy to be able to to process everything that's going on around them. I think that there is only so much blame that could be put on the individual person and a lot of blame that has to be put on the idea of it's always been this way. It has always been this way. <laughs> uh, again, thank you so much for coming on to Drinks With God today. You're welcome. So uh, Thank you, you for having me. Yeah. So I have another drink. Yeah, no, you, you, can, you can have another drink. There's more drinks to be had. And uh, would you want anybody to contact you or uh, do you have a means that people you would want to contact you through or sure um, well my gmail is just momogazer at gmail and I also have a twitter and an instagram if people feel free to send me pleasant hate mail like you've gotten or actual conversations I do want to apologize for barely using the twitter that this podcast has. I'm really bad at Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> My Twitter name is Porridge Wars. Like, Storage Wars, but Porridge. And uh, my Instagram name is WormDirtXO93, which I'm sure Milo will put probably at the bottom of the podcast, but I have no problem with anybody contacting me or criticizing anything I've said. I love a nice uh, debate. <laughs> Feel free to attack me personally. <laughs> I'll put that. And also, Porridge Wars, I would love to see the uh, the original cast of The Great British Bake Off do a Porridge Wars spinoff show. <laughs> Just throwing that out there for, like, the three people I know who are involved in the BBC. You can also contact us and have a fantastic debate on our morals and our whether or not we're going to hell and how terrible terrible people that I personally am on Facebook at drinks with God or on Twitter at drinks W God. And also you can, you should definitely subscribe to our Podbean page or on iTunes. I don't know where you're listening to this at and you should definitely buy some t-shirts or mugs or t stickers. They say things like manic pixie dream nihilist and ask me about my death anxiety. And <laughs> And if you haven't had an alternative theological experience or can provide an in-depth viewpoint of mainstream religion, please email me at drinkingwithgod at gmail.com. That is drinking, I-N-G, drinkingwithgod at gmail.com. And you all have a great evening and stay weird out there. Do you know what I mean when I say I
Bye.